my, my, my. Welcome to another episode of the Optimistic Advocate podcast. And folks, today we're honored to have as our guest, Micah Howe. Uh, Micah is a mental health advocate from rural Iowa, a small town called Garner of about 2,500 people. It's about two hours south of the Twin Cities. Micah has evolved as an advocate over the past several years and was going to be one of our featured speakers at the Tampa Conference, the research conference that the Children's Mental Health Network has been honored for the past, oh gosh, 12 years to co-host with the University of South Florida, who were the originators of the conference. At any rate, Micah was going to present and then COVID-19 hit. So that took care of that. So I really have wanted to have a conversation with him to talk about his views on advocacy, which is what this show is all about. So uh, I began by asking Micah to talk about when he began to notice his own change in behavior, which led him to fairly significant involvement with the mental health service delivery system in his young adulthood. And here's what he had to say. Until about 18 or 19, I had a really pretty normal life for the most part. And then when I went off to college, a lot of things started to change and started to become really symptomatic first with just uh, an unusual inability to adapt to that college transition, just missing home way more than my peers were, not able to deal with the change, and then turned into some OCD behaviors that eventually got diagnosed as OCD. Um, And then as some more stressful things happened in life, ended up with some hoarding behaviors that turned into uh, hoarding disorders. So now I'm, uh, yeah, 30 years old and have not been able to complete college. I've just kind of been, you know, gotten it out for the last 10, 12 years, going from therapist to therapist, uh, partial hospitalization program, just searching for answers. And now I've gained enough traction in the last few years that I'm really starting to turn towards advocacy, hoping to help other people not have such a long learning curve like I did, uh, and such an expensive one, quite frankly. Mental health issues, particularly when you have comorbid diagnoses, it is a very significant thing uh, for a child, an adolescent, and even a young adult to navigate in what's already a, a difficult time in life. Micah, I'm just curious, was there a significant turning point for you? Because that, that's quite a change from dealing with whether it's the OCD stuff, the hoarding behaviors, the overly wanting to be back home. And now you're talking about being an advocate, which is awesome. And helping people hopefully not have to travel that path that you've had to travel. What caused that turnaround, do you think? You know, I think you probably hit the nail on the head in saying that it was a series of things. First, there was just a lot of stigma that I had and and that my family had just of, you know, I I don't want to admit that I have debilitating mental health conditions. I want to power through this. I want to continue to take a full credit load at college and, you know, maybe this will go away somehow. So that acceptance piece was really big for me. And then there was probably also a nervousness about, am I really going to go to what is essentially a mental hospital and spend months there? And, you know, that took some real desperation to get me to that point. 
And then also I think medication was a big part of it. You know, being able to accept the fact that, you know what, the it, it's not fun, but these antipsychotics, they work. And they help me maintain a stability that unfortunately uh, my brain uh, runs away from when it doesn't have some kind of chemical control in place. So I think going through all that I went through, being willing to accept the diagnoses, being willing to undergo some treatments uh, that were pretty significant that I associated with being crazy or whatever we might say, and then being willing to say, you know, in the same way that some people are on a medication for their diabetes and I don't think less of them for it, I need to be willing to be on medication for my psychiatric issues. And if people think less of me for it, let them think that. But I have to do what's best for me and my health, even if it makes me feel odd. So I think that got me to the treatment. Um, and then after that, advocacy was just natural. You know, you, you, you come through such a difficult journey and finally start to get some breakthroughs. And the natural thing is, oh, man, I just... If, if I can make my suffering mean something to one family, to one person, to one parent that, you know, cries themselves to sleep at night trying to figure out what can we do next, um, if I can say one thing that points them in the direction of something they weren't aware of that makes a difference in their family's life, that's one of the most rewarding ways to use the pain. In the mental health advocacy space, and and now that you're in that space, I am guessing that you're well aware that there's a lot of controversy around the use of medications, and there's a lot of advocates who you know have walked in in your shoes in terms of having real mental health challenges that have either been on medications and then gotten off and say we don't want anything to do with it, or never did at the beginning. But everybody's different. Obviously, it sounds like it worked for you. How do you address that? Because there will be people listening to this who are very much not in favor of any kind of medication whatsoever. And then we also have followers that are, you know, so we kind of cover the spectrum. But can you comment on that? Because clearly you have a perspective. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm not a physician or, you know, a psychiatrist or anything, but I can say from my lived experience you know, medication created breakthroughs for me that just didn't happen any other way. And I think, you know, I grew up in a conservative evangelical environment where there was a lot of resistance to medication, uh, a lot of belief that, you know, if, if we're really trusting God, for example, then we won't be putting things in our bodies, you know. And, you know, I was, I, I wanted to follow that for, for a long time. But, at some point, I had to recognize that, you know, for some reason, I'm against taking an antidepressant for my anxiety, but I'll pop a Tylenol when I have a headache without really thinking about it. And I had to recognize that I think some, not all, and, and certainly everybody is entitled to their view, and I would never tell someone who is obstinately, religiously against medication, sear your conscience and do it. I would never say that, but I would say that I think some people's resistance to medication is rooted in a misunderstanding of what is causing mental illness. I know for the longest time, I wondered if 
Maybe it was because my relationship with God wasn't where it should be. Maybe it was because I wasn't exercising enough or whatever. And I think there's this desire to just say, maybe I can fix this about myself. And taking medication is in a way kind of this admission that, okay, I'm going to accept that there might be some biochemical things going on here that I'm not sure I can change. I can sleep all I want. I can exercise all I want. But there are certain things going on at a, at a neurochemistry level that I need a little medical help to change. And that's the conclusion I came to. And certainly not everybody will come to that conclusion. But I, I know for me, I spent years resisting medication. And when I finally started using it, did it make mental illness go away? No. But like one of my therapists said, it, it sort of turned the volume down on some of the thoughts and made them a little easier to ignore. And unfortunately, I think for me anyway, when you're dealing with mental illness, whatever it is, in my experience, even just being able to turn the volume down a little bit sometimes can be an absolute game changer. You know, I know, I know that one of the challenges that muddies the water on this question of, you know, to use medication or not use medication is the inappropriate prescription of that. You know, there's, there's so many examples about there out there about therapists or physicians who choose medication as a first resort. It sounds like you had a really good experience with your physician, your therapist, somebody who was, who knew what they were doing. I know you're not a physician, but I'm just going to ask you as someone who had had an experience that sounds like it worked as opposed to someone. And we hear from uh, people who have been in situations where, you know, the physician doesn't even talk to them and just, you know, prescribes, prescribes, prescribes. What would your advice be to someone in a similar situation than you when they're looking for a therapist? So again, I want to be real cautious with my, and open about my lack of credentials here at, at you know, not being a therapist in any way or a doctor. But again, as someone strictly from a lived experience perspective, I would say if I could go back, the, the thing I would do that I didn't do is when you receive a diagnosis of a particular mental illness, do research on that diagnosis, find the organization in the United States that uh, there's probably a nonprofit for whatever diagnosis you've received, contact that organization and specifically ask them things like, what is the gold standard treatment for this particular mental illness? In my case, it was OCD. And I'm going to tell you, Scott, ERP is the gold standard treatment modality for OCD but I spent years not knowing that. What's ERP? ERP is a um, form of uh, therapy that stands for exposure with response prevention. It's uh, uh, associated with CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And essentially, you know, again, from a layman's perspective, what ERP was, as I experienced it, is basically a form of therapy that says, okay, this thing makes you anxious. 
And, you know, a talk therapist might say, well, let's talk about why you're afraid of this thing and let's try to pick this fear apart and see if we can reduce your anxiety that way. ERP is more of a a modality that says what we need to do is expose you to the thing that you're afraid of and then encourage you not to respond the way that you have been responding. So a common analogy that I use is to say, you know, I'm afraid of rats, right? And we could sit here and we could talk all day long about why I'm afraid of rats. But as soon as a rat comes into the room, I'm still going to yell. But if we bring a rat into the room in a cage and we make me stand next to it for a while, eventually my anxiety will decrease. And what therapists call habituation is a process that can begin to take place. So anyway, ERP is what they recommend for OCD. That's what the experts recommend for OCD. But because I didn't reach out to the International OCD Foundation for so long after a diagnosis from a local clinician, I did not know these things. And some of the therapists that treated me did not know these things. And so we went on talking about anxiety, thinking we were accomplishing something. But it wasn't until I talked to the International OCD Foundation where they explained, this is the type of therapy you need. This is what we you know, encourage and that sort of thing. And I don't think it's all malicious. You know, Scott, I think there's a lot of therapists out there that have a real big heart. And sometimes their heart is a little bigger than their qualifications. And they want to help and they want to be the person to say, I have the answer. Um, And sometimes their heart gets in the way of their experience and their skill. And they don't sometimes know when to say, you know what, I haven't treated very many people with this. I don't exactly know. I would point you in the direction of this foundation to get more information. So that's what I would say would have made a massive difference in my situation. Great advice. For our our listeners to know, Micah had a presentation he was selected to present at the Tampa conference, which is our annual conference that uh, we're fortunate to be a co-host with the University of South Florida for. And when the reviewers were reviewing the proposals, so I'm just going to read the title of his proposal. And just for all you social marketing people, man, pay attention to this. Uh, So it says, the iconic clown reflections on the Joker's popularity as the personification of mental illness and what America can learn from Gotham City's mental health system. Okay, so there's like 97 different power words in there and trigger words in terms of, oh my gosh. And I'm going to read you this brief description that he sent in. The Joker has become a hot-button character in the last few years as it relates to mental illness and mass violence. But why? What is it about this villain that has garnered so much attention? And what might the Batman series teach us about psychosocial and political solutions to problems of behavioral health in society? You know, Mike, I got to tell you, as I'm putting the program together, I looked at this. I said, okay, I I got to <laughs> I got to meet this guy <laughs> because the whole issue of mental illness and mass shooting right right there the confusion and all of the erroneous information around the correlation between mental illness and mass shootings I want you to talk about that because you 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 
you've touched on so many hot button issues. If I'm going to be honest with myself, you get, I got a little nervous. It's like, Oh, well, okay. Um, this is a tough topic, which is precisely why we need to talk about it. And precisely why we wanted you to come to Tampa to talk about, there will be listeners to this podcast who think that we shouldn't talk about the Joker movie at all. And then there are those who think we should. So talk to me about why you came up with that title and what your thoughts are on this whole confluence of different pieces, violence in America, mental illness, our perceptions of mental illness, et cetera. So, you know, certainly it, it's, you know, so multifaceted, but essentially what I find fascinating is that we have a culture that is riddled with questions of mental illness. Many people, you know, certainly advocates, parents, people like that are usually quite involved. Um, but many people are not that involved with mental health issues and don't spend a lot of their time advocating or trying to help integrate the mentally ill into society. But ironically, a movie like The Joker, where a severely mentally ill person terrorizes a community, is Friday night entertainment for many. And so I think that's what drew me to the topic was this idea that it's just so ironic to me that legislators, you know, I've been to Washington, D.C. to advocate and legislators are, you know, just knocking their heads together, trying to find solutions to these difficult problems while a decent chunk of the mainstream culture is being entertained by the same problems that they say, we want these things under control because we don't want to send our kids to a school where these tragedies happen. So I think that was kind of the thing that caught my attention and drew me to the topic. As far as what I wanted to get across in the program, should we have had it, there were a variety of points, but essentially the thing that I wanted to draw out most importantly is that we don't do a real good job of integrating the mentally ill. We tend to just categorize them, push them aside, blame them for social problem. Uh, in some cases in the lack of really good scientific evidence that they are actually responsible for some of these social problems. And, you know, the reason Gotham city could get away with, you know, not trying to help the Joker is because they had Batman. It was fantasy. Um, but in the real world where we don't have fantasy, we need to take people that have significant mental illness and say, how can we integrate them into society? How can we give them a life outside of living in mom and dad's basement in between therapy appointments or being in prison or whatever? How can we integrate them into society in some way instead of vilifying them because of mental illness? And unfortunately, in the Batman series, that's exactly what Joker's mental illness is all about. It's used to make him scarier, to make him seem more dangerous. You know, we see the Batman series often talking about Arkham Asylum and, oh, my gosh, he's escaped from Arkham Asylum again. And this idea that because he's mentally ill, that's why we should be afraid of him. And it's not helpful to the mentally ill or society in general that we perpetuate these stigmas, that we should be afraid of the mentally ill. We should separate them from us. We need to focus on integrating them and destigmatizing some of these ideas that, 
oh, because this person is schizophrenic, they're this horrible danger to everyone and they just need to be managed. Do you see examples in, you know, in your travels? Well, we're not traveling now, but do you see examples of where communities are are getting it right? And, And if so, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, to be honest, it's, it's a little more rare. It's, it's a little tougher to see, but I do see some things that are encouraging. For example, you know, while it's only a start, I think that the peer support movement is a great example of something that should be fostered even more than it already is. You know, it provides an opportunity for people with mental illness to use their lived experience to the benefit of others and earn a wage doing it. I mean, certainly I think the wage should be much higher than uh, some government grants allow. People's lived experience of mental illness is worth a a lot and, and certainly not the same as certain other normal careers. I mean, people go through a lot to have that experience and it provides a lot of benefit. And I, it would be nice to see these people compensated in a way that they could reasonably make a full-time living doing this without much difficulty. But that would be one example of something I've seen that I think is, is really helpful. But honestly, I think society is a mixture of people that maybe don't have as much empathy as they should and people that have the empathy but don't understand the problem from a firsthand perspective to the degree that they can come up with a lot of helpful solutions. It's, it's difficult. In your advocacy work, how are you helping people gain that understanding? What are the kinds of things that you're doing? I think, you know, I'm pretty early on in my advocacy. Um, a lot of the things I'm doing are just getting off the ground. But essentially what, what I'm trying to communicate is lived experience and the value that it has and the importance of understanding how someone who lives with mental illness experiences the world. So, you know, I'll talk with legislators and not try to throw all these statistics at them, although that's important and that's an important part of shaping public policy. I think the voice that's often missing in these policy discussions is how do the policies we put in place affect the very people that suffer with these conditions? I have all the respect in the world for therapists. They played an invaluable role in my treatment. But at the end of the day, there is a difference between a therapist's nine to five experience of treating mental illness and a person who lives with it 24 hours a day, woken up in the middle of the night by it. And when they want to be done with it, they can't walk away. And I think helping people without mental illness think through that lens is is really key to breakthrough. And I, and I think you know, another example, I, I spent some time when I was trying to get through college um, doing some self-advocacy with officials at the college, because sometimes what college officials might think is an accommodation because they're not living it. They don't realize uh, maybe we really haven't accommodated this person to the degree that we think we have. For example, maybe they'll offer, well, you can go to school part-time instead of full-time. And on the face, they think, wow, we've really done something for this person. But what they don't understand is, okay, well, now this person's family has to come up with living costs for an additional two to three, maybe more years 
uh, while they go to school part time. So there's just seeing it from the perspective of someone who's living it is just crucial when we talk about looking for solutions. As a person with lived experience talking now to other people with lived experience and you know, somebody might be listening to this podcast saying, geez, I, I could never do what Micah does. What would you say to him? You know, I, I think I would, I would tell anyone who has lived experience that their lived experience has far more value than they know that it does. And I, I would encourage them to make sure that they really have their own recovery in a good place before they make, you know, significant efforts in advocacy. But once they have their recovery in place, look, I'm sitting here on a podcast talking about my experience. And five years ago, I was in a partial hospitalization program, barely able to make it there on time. Showering was difficult. And I could not get outside of my own head for more than 20 minutes. Uh, I, I had no idea that advocacy was on my radar. And I think a lot of people suffering with mental illness need to understand that if you make the right choices for yourself and your mental health one day at a time, you can get places in two years, in four years, in six years that are completely unimaginable to you right now as you're struggling. And I think that was crucial for me is to take it one day at a time and not always trust my imagination. You know, sometimes with mental illness, you get anxious, you get sad. And your imagination tells you, oh, man, where am I going to be in 15 years if this doesn't get better? And, and that's a game you just don't want to play. Oftentimes, it's just what can I do for myself today? You can be shocked at where just steady growth over time can get you in, in, a, few, uh, in a few years. And I, I wouldn't want anybody who ever heard me speak or, you know, listen to me being interviewed or anything like that, I wouldn't want anyone to ever think, oh, he's of a different class than us or his mental health wasn't ever really that bad. It was. But you're capable of far more than you know. That is seriously inspirational. I have a few more questions that I want to ask you. We're in a pandemic. What, what, what's your message to people with lived experience who may not be at the place you're at like in your case with, you know, with uh, having a better handle on your, uh, whether it's your OCD or, you know, what, whatever issues might be going on, what would you say to them? You know, these are obviously very trying times and my heart goes out to people, especially with certain types of mental illness that are really exacerbated by what we see in the news every day. And I would say to them, just to hang in there and be patient. I, I know that's just like such stereotypical advice, but I feel like sometimes in my mental health journey, I, I was longing for someone to say something profound that would make it all go away. And there just isn't that advice out there, unfortunately. The best thing I could ever do for my mental health is pursue the therapy, do the things that my treatment team tell me to do, and let time eventually get on my side of repeating those good behaviors. And I know that's not satisfying. I know there's people listening that are just going to say, you know, that's not the breakthrough bit of advice that I was looking for. That's not the, the game-changing statement that I was looking for. But I think for me in my own 
journey. That was part of my struggle is I was always looking for someone to come in and rescue me out of this thing or make something change as opposed to recognizing that, you know what, this is. And just like that, the internet went dead and we lost the connection, lost Micah. Oh my. Such is the age of Zoom in the midst of a pandemic. Anyway, I got connected back with Micah. He was on a roll and he was uh, finishing up. And I had one last question for him. And it's our Zoom question that we ask everyone. So let's, uh, <laughs> gotta love it, folks. So let's get that Zoom question in and uh, hear what he had to say as a way to wrap up the interview. If you could have a Zoom call with anyone, living or dead, hopefully one with good internet connection, who would it be and why? So it would, I would definitely choose to, to have a Zoom call with Tiger Woods. Um, idolized him as a kid growing up for his dominance, for his just unbelievable ability to come through in the clutch under enormous pressure, you know, with the whole world watching. And then for him to have the fall from grace that he had and have everybody lose faith in him and quite frankly, have a large portion of people not really care if he ever came back to greatness. I would love to just tap into his mind of how he dealt with, you know, such a collapse and built it back and, you know, reach the pinnacle of success again at an age when people are actually quite surprised he's done it. And I just, I admire his resolve. I admire his ability to be victorious in front of the whole world, to fall on his face in front of the whole world, and still keep charging after what he's wanted since he was a kid. To, to have a conversation with him about how he processes things mentally would just be fascinating to me. That is Beautiful. You are uh, quite the force, Micah Howe. I really appreciate you taking time to spend with us. Thank you so very much. Thank the gods of the internet for allowing <laughs> yes. us to get through this. It was a delightful conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, brother. Bye-bye. Oh my goodness. Another. How is it possible? Another great episode. Another great guest for the Optimistic Advocate podcast. Micah Howe, is he not something special? His outlook on life, his ability to put in perspective the struggles that he has endured and how he's overcome them, very inspirational. Ah, so much fun. Hey, tell your friends, you gotta listen to the Optimistic Advocate. And sign up already, you know, subscribe. You'll feel better, you'll be taller, whiter teeth, more hair. You name it, you'll have it. Okay, folks, that's it for this episode of the Optimistic Advocate Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>